Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll speak with community-based union organizer Sean Smith on the recent election in Ireland. And on the eve of a possible spring election in Canada, we'll examine the federal political scene with political analyst Dennis Pilon. First, the alert headlines for the week of March 17, 2011. Japan remains in a state of emergency five days after a devastating earthquake and tsunami hit the country. An estimated 10,000 people have died, and Japan is facing the world's worst nuclear crisis since Chernobyl. Japanese authorities are scrambling to avert a meltdown at the stricken Fukushima nuclear reactor after a second hydrogen explosion rocked the facility. Nuclear fuel rods are now fully exposed at reactor number two at the nuclear plant. The power plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power, said water levels inside the nuclear reactor were almost empty, raising fears of a meltdown. A senior Japanese official has said radiation levels are now high enough to affect human health. Prime Minister Naoto Kan has urged those living within 30 kilometers of the plant to stay indoors. The nuclear crisis in Japan touched off mass anti-nuclear protests across Europe this weekend. In Germany, some 50,000 protesters formed a 27-mile human chain from a nuclear power plant to the city of Stuttgart. German Chancellor Angela Merkel recently announced plans to extend the life of 17 German nuclear plants for an average 12 extra years. The large anti-nuclear protest was also held in France. On the first night of Israeli Apartheid Week 2011, Students Against Israeli Apartheid at the University of Toronto and York University officially launched a campaign demanding that their respective universities divest from four companies involved in violations of Palestinian human rights. Investments in BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman and Hewlett Packard have been found in the University of Toronto's Pension Master Trust, Long-Term Capital Appreciation Pool, and Expendable Funds Investment Pool, as well as in York University's Pension and Endowment Funds. The student groups claim these companies are complicit in human rights violations and the murder of civilians in Palestine. Just under two decades ago, York University was one of the first universities in Canada to divest from South African apartheid. A revised citizenship study guide for new Canadians contains a single sentence on gay and lesbian rights, a topic completely absent from the first release of the federal government's guide in November 2009. The added material on gay rights was among several notable additions to the document unveiled by Immigration Minister Jason Kenney, including denunciations of violent extremism and forced marriage. EGAL Canada a national gay and lesbian advocacy group that pushed for the guide to be changed, posted a statement to its website welcoming the addition, while calling for transgender rights to also be added to the guide. Toronto Mayor Rob Ford says more than $100,000 in city funding for the 2011 Toronto Pride Parade won't be forthcoming if organizers allow an anti-Israel group to take part. The annual event is almost four months away, but Ford has already vowed not to open city coffers for Pride if it lets the group Queers Against Israeli Apartheid march again this year. Ford claims that taxpayer dollars should not go towards funding hate speech. 
The loss of city funding would be a large blow to Pride Toronto, which emerged from last year's festival with a debt of nearly $110,000 due to alleged financial mismanagement and the loss of a $400,000 federal grant. In Wisconsin, more than 100,000 people filled the streets of Madison last Saturday in what has been described as the state's largest protest ever. The massive rally was held one day after Republican Governor Scott Walker signed a bill to strip most workers of their right to collectively bargain. The AFL-CIO put the size of the crowd on Saturday at 185,000. Speakers at the rally included many of the 14 Democratic senators who had fled the state three weeks ago in an attempt to stall the legislation. Governor Walker told reporters he hopes Wisconsin will inspire other states to pass similar laws. Labor protests are also continuing across the United States. In South Carolina, thousands of teachers, religious leaders, and state workers gathered at the Capitol building in opposition to cuts targeted at education, health care, and other state services. In Austin, Texas, more than 10,000 protesters swarmed the grounds of the Capitol Saturday to denounce Governor Rick Perry's proposal to fire educators, increase class sizes, and cut programs. Protesters in Maine filled the Capitol building to take a stand against the plan to strip $18 million from the state's Fund for a Healthy Maine. Also on Friday, concerned parents and citizens from Maryland's Prince George's County gathered at a local school to protest budget cuts that could leave hundreds of low-income, magnet high school students without school buses. Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak was quoted in a Wall Street Journal interview as saying that Israel would need to boost military spending and may seek an additional $20 billion in U.S. security aid to deal with the threats arising from the upheaval in the Middle East and North Africa. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has also recently said Israel will have to significantly increase its defense spending in the next budget. According to Netanyahu, this increase is necessary to provide an answer to the increasing threats facing the country. Israel receives $3 billion in U.S. aid per year, of which the overwhelming majority is earmarked for military use. Saudi military forces in tanks and armored personnel carriers have crossed the 16-mile causeway into the tiny island kingdom of Bahrain to defend the Sunni monarchy, raising the specter of sectarian clashes and heightened conflict with Iran. Gulf Cooperation Council states moved quickly in response to a request from Bahrain's ruling Al-Khalifa family to dispatch the first deployment of Arab troops across national borders since a revolt in Tunisia in December sparked unrest across the Arab world. Bahrain's ruling elite have been rattled by a dramatic escalation in protests that broke out one month ago. Saudi Arabia said 1,000 of its soldiers took part, and the United Arab Emirates said 500 of its police officers had arrived at Bahrain's request. A Saudi official said the soldiers were sent to protect Bahrain's oil and power facilities and other key installations. U.S. State Department Chief Spokesman P.J. Crowley has been forced to quit after criticizing the way the Pentagon was dealing with WikiLeaks suspect Bradley Manning. The U.S. soldier is accused of leaking secret documents that featured on the WikiLeaks website and is being held in solitary confinement at the Quantico U.S. Marines base. Mr. Crowley described the Pentagon's handling of the situation as ridiculous, counterproductive, and stupid. 
Manning, 23, is being held at Quantico during the investigation, and his lawyers have complained that he is being severely mistreated. President Barack Obama told a news conference late last week he had been reassured by the Pentagon that the treatment of Manning was adequate and met basic standards. According to a new survey by Fidelity Investments, almost half of America's millionaires do not feel rich enough despite their outsized savings, while almost two-thirds fret over the chance that rising taxes might further erode their enviable nest eggs. The survey polled U.S. households with assets to invest of at least $1 million. Of the more than 1,000 millionaires who responded, 42% said they do not feel that well off. The unsatisfied millionaires said it would take assets of at least $7.5 million to make them feel secure. The average U.S. household has a net worth of $86,000. Those were the alert headlines for the week of March 17, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 17, 2011. The University of Manitoba Global Political Economy Program is presenting two events in Winnipeg with Dr. Minky Lee of the University of Utah. On March 21st, Dr. Lee will give the lecture The Impending Climate Catastrophe and the Historical Possibilities of the 21st Century at the Winnipeg Art Gallery at 7 o'clock p.m. On March 22nd, Dr. Lee will host a seminar to discuss the critical issues facing the present global system economic crisis, geopolitical crisis, and ecological crisis. The seminar will be held in 409 tier at the University of Manitoba at 12.30. Three women who helped initiate and sustain the Grassy Narrows blockade will be speaking throughout Ontario from March 21st until the 26th. They will discuss how their actions are empowering the youth in their community, reclaiming control over their territory, reviving their culture, and defending our earth. On March 21st, they will be in Orangeville, on the 22nd in Guelph, the 23rd in Mississauga, the 24th in Toronto, the 25th in Paris, and in Hamilton on March 26th. All events are free, but donations are encouraged. Former leader of the Manitoba NDP, Howard Pauley, will be launching his book, Keep True, A Life in Politics, at McNally Robinson in Winnipeg on March 28th. Other speakers include Paul Moist, President of the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Muriel Smith, who is a Cabinet Minister for Pauley's NDP, and recent mayoral candidate Judy Wasilishalees. The event begins at 7 o'clock p.m. RSVP to Cheryl Miki at Miki at cc.umanitoba.ca. Writer and photographer William Perry will be touring Quebec and Ontario to discuss the significance and symbolism of various forms of resistance art from across the occupied Palestinian territories. Perry is the author of Against the Wall, The Art of Resistance in Palestine. The tour begins in Montreal on March 28th and continues in Ottawa on the 29th, in Toronto on the 30th and 31st, London on April 1st, and Hamilton on Saturday, April 2nd. For more details, go to www.cjpme.org. Former Afghan MP Malalai Joya said, No nation can donate liberation to another nation. 
This is certainly the case for Canada's involvement in the war in Afghanistan, where civilian casualties spiked in 2010 and the rate of killing is increasing each month. The Canadian Peace Alliance has organized a Pan-Canadian Day of Action on April 9th to demand that Canadian troops leave Afghanistan immediately. If you're in Vancouver, meet at the downtown public library at 1 o'clock p.m. In Toronto, meet across from the U.S. Consulate, 360 University Avenue, at noon. Join community and labour activists in Toronto on April 9th to protest the aggressive conservatism of Mayor Rob Ford. Since taking office in November, Ford has made clear attacks on public transit, unions, public services and Toronto's environmental plans. Meet at Toronto City Hall at 1 o'clock p.m. to tell Mayor Ford these are our services, this is our city. A conference on niobium mining in Oka will be held at the Université du Québec à Montréal on April 14th. Speakers include Ellen Gabriel, Mohawk, from Ghana Sataki, Alain Deneau, author of Noir Canada, and Simon Dubois of the OCA Citizens Committee. For more information, please go to solidarité avec les autochtones.org. That's all for Around the Left for the week of March 17, 2011. With the opposition parties uh, preparing possibly to bring down the Harper government uh, with their upcoming budget, Alert caught up with Dennis Pilon. He teaches politics at the University of Victoria and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Welcome to the program, Dennis. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts uh, as we're uh, reaching this uh, March 22nd budget? Uh, are you uh, fairly confident that uh, the Conservatives want an election? Oh, gosh, I'm not confident about anything uh, with the current state of our, our, our federal uh, parliament. Uh, there's been various times in the last few years that we have seen what looked like the brinkmanship that would lead us to an election only to have some sort of last-minute deal, you know, save the day. So, I mean, really, I, I don't think until it's, it's finally done we're going to know whether there'll be an election or not. Okay, well... How, how would you expect, uh, should, it be, should an election be in the offing, how would you expect it to actually play out? Well, I mean, if, if nothing changes, I, I think we could look at either uh, another conservative minority or possibly a conservative majority government. Possibly. Well, what are the, uh, the opposition parties then doing to try to, uh, to stem that tide? Uh, do you see the Liberals working with the NDP in any capacity? Uh, you know, the difficulty, I, I think, is, you know, a lot of people expect the Liberals and the NDP to get something together. And, you know, this is based, I think, on a kind of romantic association with the, you know, the NDP and Liberals of yore, go back to the days of, of uh, you know, the Trudeau uh, deal in 1972. But those days are over. You know, today's Liberal Party is almost indistinguishable on economic policies from our federal conservatives. You know, they differ on some social issues. They differ on some of the clientelistic groups that they pay attention to. But it's very difficult for the federal liberals to work for any length of time uh, with the New Democrats because it tends to bleed their right-wing supporters, who are mostly economic uh, conservatives, over to the conservatives. So both the liberals and conservatives have positioned themselves fairly close together. I mean, if anything, the logical coalition at the federal level is the liberals and the conservatives. 
right? Uh, because they share so much in common. So I, I don't think people should look for any kind of breakthrough on that front. Okay, well, what about, uh, there, there is a, a fourth party in there, uh, the Bloc Québécois. Are, are they going to be pretty much running things, uh, doing their own thing, at least in, in Quebec? Is it a Bloc versus Conservative contest? or I think the Bloc uh, is facing off against different uh, challenges in different places. You know, there's obviously still some surviving Liberals, there's a few Conservatives, and there's one New Democrat. Uh, and all three of the major parties have said that they want some purchase on Quebec. I mean, you know, some might ask if the New Democrats aren't really kidding themselves on how much they can stand to gain by breaking into uh, Quebec. The difficulty is is that the progressive voters that the New Democrats would like to vote for them are already voting for the progressive party in Quebec. It's the bloc. Uh, so that means that they've got to try to pick up the cast-off and leftovers uh, from the Liberal Party. Well, the Liberal Party in Quebec is much further to the right than, say, you know, the Liberal Party in Ontario. And that's saying something. <laughs> so, mm. I mean, to the extent that the New Democrats uh, pick up some former Liberal supporters, people like Thomas Mulcair, uh, what are they getting themselves into? Uh, I mean, really what we need is a breakthrough in terms of negotiations between the federal NDP and the bloc. They need to agree to disagree on sovereignty because obviously uh, there's a constituency within the federal New Democrats that just are, you know, cannot sanction that idea. They need to just say, we're not going to talk about that. Let's talk about what we can talk about, which is progressive social policies. Both parties, at least on, on the books, have commitment to progressive social policies and working together, they could really make a creative new force at the federal level. Mm. Well, uh, recently we've been hearing that uh, Mr. Layton of the NDP is in talks with the Conservatives, uh, so to possibly, uh, you know, so much for the idea of, of an NDP bloc kind of a working relationship. Uh, and it seems like corporate tax cuts could be uh, a deal breaker. How do you see that, uh, that, that corporate tax reduction issue uh, resonating with the voters themselves? Is that a possible issue that could be carried forward? Well, I mean, you know, the difficulty, I mean, there's a number of things there, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, Layton's just trying to wrong-foot the liberals. You know, I mean, he's, obviously there aren't a lot of, 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 of arenas within which the conservatives and the Democrats can work together. Uh, and so, you know, if he can make Harper slow down on corporate tax cuts as a way of sticking it to the liberals, uh, you know, it makes sense as a strategy. I think the problem with the corporate tax cuts issue is that it's been going on for so long, and the right have been so relentless in advocating for their position, which fits in with their neoliberal vision, that I think a lot of the voting public have just sort of, well, they kind of see it as inevitable. You know, it's going to come one way or another. The problem is we don't have an effective counter vision. What would a counter vision be that links keeping corporate tax taxes the same or even raising them with a vision of what a fair and, and just Canadian society would look like. And that's where, I mean, obviously the Democrats face a real problem, given that the media has largely embraced this kind of neoliberal vision. Uh, and, but, you know, I think if they can talk in plain language about unfairness and inequality and the lack of opportunity for most people, uh, that will resonate with Canadians. Hmm. Uh, well, when you look at, like, when you poll Canadians in terms of the things that they believe in, do you find that the uh, average Canadians are, are closer to the Liberals and the Conservatives than they are to the NDP? 
I think it depends on how you ask them the question. If you ask them the question about fairness and justice and opportunities for themselves, a lot of them will sound very much like social democrats. If you bang the drum of crime and a whole bunch of other hot-button issues, then they tend to sound more like the liberals than the conservatives. Here's the real problem. People talk about politics like there's a pie, and it's just about, oh, I need to get some of that slice from the liberals, or I'm going to grab some over here from the conservatives. But really, we, the, the bigger problem is that a whole bunch of people have fallen out of Canadian politics altogether. You know, we're down to, like, what, 55%, 57% voter turnout at the federal level? That means there's a huge constituency of potential voters who aren't voting for anyone. And the thing that we know about those voters is that a lot of them are poor people and working class people for whom the political system is just not really doing very much for them. Uh, no one's really organizing them into politics. So I think the challenge, not just for the NDP, but I think for progressives everywhere, is how can we re-engage that group of people, bring them back into conventional politics? Because if we don't, we are just going to keep moving further and further down this neoliberal path. <clears throat> are you suggesting that um, you engaging the public somehow that that could be uh, that could allow the NDP, for example, to to take off in popularity? I think that the NDP could defend the ideas that they're talking about if a broader group of the Canadian public was involved in politics. The very people who need the kind of policies the NDP have traditionally defended are just the ones who aren't voting in elections anymore. And instead, it's a very middle-class affair where you know, the, the parties talk about things that matter to people who are already privileged. So, I mean, getting that larger group of people back into politics won't guarantee that their issues will get addressed. But uh, there's a damn sight better chance that they'll be heard or have to be reckoned with if they show up to the polls. I was um, wondering, though, with the uh, there's been a lot of press lately about uh, negative attack ads from the conservatives. That That is engaging the public, but in a, in, a, in a negative way. Is it having an impact? Absolutely. We know that negative attack ads work. The only thing that works against negative attack ads is constituency organizing that can speak past the sound bites. If all people are hearing are the ads on, on, on the air, then that will have some influence. But if they're sort of inoculated by some personal contact with the political system, that can be a powerful counterforce. We've got to get face-to-face -face with people on the doorstep to help facilitate their re-entry you know, back into politics. A lot of those people, they don't vote, not because they're lazy or uninterested or too busy, but a lot of them just don't feel that they know very much. They don't feel that they're entitled to an opinion. And that's the very thing that the old left parties used to do, right? They used to go and say, look, of course you have a right to participate. Of course your opinion matters. Well, Pat Dennis, uh, we appreciate your perspectives on this issue, and uh, thank you for uh, sharing them with us on Alert, and uh, we'll see how things play out should an election be called. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dennis. And uh, Dennis Pilon teaches polit politics at the University of Victoria and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. The Ireland election of February 26th brought down the once-dominant political force of Fianna Foyle. How did this happen, and who is in control of Ireland's political future now? And what about the rise of the United Left Alliance, a new movement on the left in Ireland? 
To talk to us about the situation in Ireland, Alert has contacted at his home in Toronto, Sean Smith, a community-based union organizer and also a member of Toronto's Worker Assembly. Hi, welcome to Alert Radio, Sean. Hi, Ashley. So let's start with uh, a bit about what happened in the election. Why was Fianna Foyle turfed on February 26th? Well, I think by now everyone's heard of the economic uh, crisis that's been uh, rocking Ireland. It's, it's quite amazing because the Celtic Tiger economic model has utterly imploded. And uh, essentially, if you, even, even, the Irish, um, even the Irish political classes are saying that the main reason that Fianna Foyle's taking it is because they were holding the ball when it happened. Um, because um, Ireland has a unique uh, political characteristic of it being dominated by two essentially copycat versions of each other politically. It doesn't really have a right-left divide. And uh, traditionally, parties lose power when bad things happen when they're in power. And uh, Fianna Foyle was just the ones holding the ball when it all imploded, because both uh, the two main parties, Fine Gael, which would probably be closer to a progressive conservative with us, the old progressive conservative, uh, they were as well a full full-bodied member of the Celtic Tiger model, too. And uh, Fianna Foyle was holding the ball, and, and there's just incredible anger and resentment at both political parties, but especially at Fianna Foyle, because they were the ones that were the last with it. So tell us about the victor of this election. Uh, what changes can we expect, if any? <laughs> it's actually quite interesting, because Fine Gael has won a historic victory. They called it a democratic revolution. And they really, did, they really did tap into the anger because a, a large people, a large percentage of the population voted um, to just essentially to vote Fianna Foyle out. And uh, Fine Gael obviously was the main pickup of that with uh, the Labour Party being the traditional junior partner in the, in the Civil War um, politics, uh, picking up historic levels of support too. Now, since they formed the coalition government, um, they've essentially done what they've essentially done is everything that they said they would not do. They've they've accepted, so they've accepted all of uh, Fianna Foyle's uh, concessions and everything else, and their cutbacks. But uh, in the finagling between the coalition parties, uh, Fine Gael wanted to cut 30,000 civil servants, and Labour said, "No, no, that's too much." will reduce it to 25000 And uh, they've restored the minimum wage, the cuts to the minimum wage, but they refuse to um, tax the rich. They refuse to raise the low corporate tax of 12.5%. They've agreed to an additional four, uh, what is it here? I believe it's uh, 2 billion euros in the sale of state assets and as well an additional 4.7 billion euros in cuts. So it's, inc- it's taking the, the austerity measures that the, work, that the voters voted against and maximizing it even more. So there's a lot of anger right now and a lot of resentment. So what we're going to be seeing is more kind of neoliberal policies and more, Absolutely, more yeah. austerity it's, it's measures. The entrenchment of the neoliberal model, because they're not going to surrender this model. And, uh, both, and both Fine Gael and Labour are very much the, the three tiers, the th- second and third tier of the model. So they're doing what they can to restore the neo- neoliberal model right now. 
Well, a new grouping calling itself the United Left Alliance won five seats in the February 26th election. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the ULA? What is it? How did it come about? What does it stand for? Yeah, it's actually an incredible development because Ireland has such an entrenched neoliberal uh, model that it really is hard to even break through um, in, any, in any way whatsoever. And what the ULA did is, as opposed to just simply forming a new political party and trying to build up a party from nothing, is they've taken some successes that they've had on different levels and, and form an alliance between uh, some smaller political left parties, in particular the Socialist Workers Party, the Socialist Party, and uh, community activist groups. Uh, there's the People Before Profits, the workers and unemployed action groups. These are essentially uh, community-based activist organizations that, received, that made some breakthroughs within the municipal elections. And uh, what they've done is they formed an alliance to say, look, we'll, like, whether we're a movement or, or an actual political party, we'll determine after the election, but for now, let's, let's you know, agree on the things that we can agree on right now, and, and let's start putting some people opposed to this model into the Irish doll, which is their, their parliament. So what do they stand for specifically? Do they have a, a kind of a platform or an agreement that they yeah, stand they, for? They have, uh, they have essentially two main points. Like, they have a seven-point program, but essentially their two main points is that they say there can be no just or sustainable solution to the crisis based on a capitalist market. Instead, we favor democratic and public control over resources, so social need is prioritized over profit. And then they also said, and this is the second point where it's quite interesting, because the, the, this alliance was formed in November, so it's, it's a fairly recent development. And what they said is that we will make no deals or support any coalition with any of the right-wing parties, particularly Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael. So they already anticipated what was going to happen, and they said, look, we're going to be opposition, we're going to build something from the opposition benches because we've got a lot of work to do, and we're not going to become, you know, props to the, to the neoliberal model at all. So what impact do you think the ULA will have on Irish policies? It's having an incredibly large impact right now, because for the first time in, in Ireland's history, you have a true opposition sitting within their parliament. Um, what's also interesting is, is in other parts of Europe and even here in Canada, when neoliberalism fails, unfortunately, you'd think that this would be an opportunity for left, but unfortunately it ends up being taken over by right-wing populists, like the Tea Party movement or, or whatever. Um, and because the ULA's been making the gains, Sinn Féin, which is a traditional national party, has been making gains as well. And it's moving to the left because the ULA has found that spot by attacking the economic model. It's forcing other smaller groups into that same space. So right now there's a competition on the opposition benches between the ULA and Sinn Féin. And as well, there's the eight uh, independent TDs that were elected as well. So there's actually competing visions of the left right now. And the ULA has been instrumental in creating that space because if they didn't create that space, there would just be the natural drift to the right. 
Well, as for for one quick last question, um, are there so are there there are similar alliances or things happening across Europe? There are similar uh, there are similar anti-capitalist uh, movements, and this is this would be considered more of an anti-capitalist uh, party because it, it's trying to sort out whether it will follow a political model or else into something much more empowering and much more broad based. Um, countries like this is actually Portugal has the left bloc, which started in a very similar vein. Uh, Greece has had a, a party like this as well for a while. But in Ireland, it really is showing how it's possible to make those breakthroughs that you start at the local level and you simply find the, the points in common within the left movements and build from there, as opposed to saying we have to agree on 100% right now. And the discussion right now within the ULA is, are we going to formalize this as a party, and how are we going to move beyond oppositional protest into moving into political power? And they've been very patient about it so far. They've been very realistic and incredibly effective. Like, it's been a really remarkable breakthrough that, you know, a year ago, Ireland was not considered a, a, a strong place right now for left in, for left in Europe. And it's, it's now transitioning into becoming one of the centers of opposition to the neoliberal model. So it sounds a little bit like Solidaire in Quebec. Very much so. All right. Except, fortunately, with their voting system, they can have a bit more. And they've taken the, Sol- the Quebec Solidaire model and grafted it to the, to the, to the community movements themselves. So it's, they actually will have a lot of support within the, uh, within the smaller town councils and that. Well, I think we'll leave it, at, leave it at that for today. We're out of time. But thank you for speaking with us about this issue. It's uh, going to be a very interesting time in Ireland over the next little while. Definitely, to, definitely worth watching. Oh, thanks for speaking with us today, Sean. No problem, Ashley. Take care. That was Sean Smith, a community-based organizer and also a member of Toronto's Worker Assembly, speaking to us about the recent election in Ireland. This is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And today's show is completely dedicated to one great Canadian songwriting icon by the name of Wade Hemsworth. That's probably not a name that rings with familiarity the way, say, Stan Rogers does, or Gordy Lightfoot, but more than likely, all of you have heard some of Wade's songs. You've probably seen them as NFB shorts. I first heard Wade Hemsworth when I was about 13 years old, and I was a kid at Camp Northland in northern Ontario up near Halliburton, and we'd sing his songs around the campfire. We're going to start with probably his most famous one, and we're going to start with him singing it. You know this song, The Black Fly. Twas early in the spring when I decide to go for to work up in the woods in North Ontario. And the unemployment office said they'd send me through to the little abitibi with the survey crew. The black flies, the little black flies, always the black fly no matter where you go. I'll die with the black fly up in my bones in North Ontario, in North Ontario. 
the man black Toby was the captain of the crew And he said I'm gonna tell you boys what we're gonna do They want to build a power dam We must find a way for to make the little lab floor Run the other way with the black flies The little black flies Always the black fly no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly picking my bones In North Ontario, why oh In North Ontario So we serve it to the east, serve it to the west Couldn't make our minds up how to do it best Little lab, little lab, what shall I do? I'm all but going crazy with the survey crew And the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario Black fly, black fly everywhere A crawling in your whiskers, crawling in your hair Swimming in the soup, swimming in the tea And the devil take the black fly, let me be And the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, why oh, in North Ontario Black Toby fell to swear and the work went slow The state of her morale was a-getting pretty low The flies swarm heavy, hard to catch your breath You just stack it up and down the trail talking to yourself The black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, why oh, in North Ontario well now, the bull cook's name is Blind River Joe If it hadn't been for him, we'd have never pulled through Cause he bound up our bruises and he kitted us for fun And he lathered us with bacon grease and balsam gum For the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly, no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly, picking my bones In North Ontario, oh, in North Ontario And at last the job was over, Black Toby said we're through With the little Abitibi and the survey crew T'was a wonderful experience and this I know I'll never go again to North Ontario With the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly picking my bones In North Ontario, why oh, in North Ontario And the black flies, the little black flies Always the black fly no matter where you go I'll die with the black fly picking my bones In North Ontario, why oh, in North Ontario That was Wade Hemsworth singing his famous song, The Black Fly. Wade Hemsworth is a Montrealer. He lived there most of his life. And in, he, he wrote a total of 16 songs. That's it, top to bottom, 16 really good songs. But he was living a pretty obscure life, and every once in a while, people would sing The Black Fly, or people would sing The Log Driver's Waltz, which you all know, which he wrote. And... Uh, the McGarrigal sisters were friends of his, and they kind of got together with him, and they recorded a bunch of stuff with him, and they started dragging him around to folk festivals. And some of the most delightful shows I've ever seen at a folk festival was Wade and the McGarrigal sisters. The McGarrigal sisters recorded a whole bunch of Wade songs. And here is, to start, here is the Log Driver's Waltz. Thank you. 
you ask any girl from the parish around what pleases her most from her head to her toes she'll say i'm not sure that it's business of yours but i sure like to waltz with the log driver for he goes burning down and down white water that's where the log driver learns to step lightly it's burning down and down white water a log driver's waltz pleases girls completely The doctors and the merchants and lawyers Their matters are fine, but their feet are of clay For there's none with the style of a law driver For he goes burning down and down white water That's where the law driver learns to step lightly It's burning down and down white water A law driver's walls pleases
money in pound I'd like to get married But I can't settle down At the last portage When I'll pack no more Let me fly with the wild goose High over North Shore Wild goose Wild goose High over the North Shore I'm going
was the McGarrigal sisters singing Wade Hemsworth, My Mother is the Ocean Sea, and before that, Wild Goose, and before that, The Log Driver's Waltz. Wade lived a long time, uh, and in that life of his, he lived all over the place in Canada, and there were 16 songs of his. I mean, he's one song called Montreal, which is a great song, but it's just about Montreal from his perspective. He spent a lot of time in the woods, and a lot of the songs he wrote were about the woods or about nature. And so here is the land of the muskeg. Oh, you girls in the village, you girls in the town, it's a long time, a very long time for a fella who's after being out on his own, out on his own. Where the whiskey jacks whistle in cheerful and free In the land of the muskeg and the shining birch tree The shining birch tree Now it's all very well in the full of the day When there's no time, not very much time For a man to keep thinking of the things that don't pay The things that don't pay where the rapids are rushing so grand and so free In the land of the muskeg and the shining birch tree The shining birch tree But in the quiet of the evening when the camp settles down And the night is cold, so very cold And old Rory Bory starts shifting around, shifting around then he'll think of the warm lips and the laughter so free In the land of the muskeg and the shining birch tree The shining birch tree Come the in-between seasons of the freeze-up or the thaw And it's let's go, hey look out, let's go For we're off for some fun with the girls in the town The girls in the town He's a popular guy when his money flows free From the land of the muskeg and the shining birch tree The shining birch tree And when the huskies are a-howlin' in the cold winter's dawn Then here we call, oh how here we call That he spent all his money with the girls in the town the girls in the town So boys, save your money Or you'll all be like me In the land of the muskeg And the shining birch tree The shining birch tree Fortune's favor on your own 
While the one who stays beside you Foolish me is left alone Sad and foolish, that's how I feel Don't you know how fortune favors few Fortune's blind, as blind as you My dear, what a pity Oh foolish you hardly fair Must I go seek a fortune too Or must I wait till folly finds its own way home to me and foolish you Sad and foolish that's how I feel Don't you know how fortune favors you Fortune's blind, as blind as you, my dear, what a pity, oh foolish you. Loving you was good, love was kind, I didn't mind the payments overdue. For the price of loving's none too dear As long as I'm with foolish you Sad and foolish, that's how I feel Don't you know how fortune favors few Fortune's blind, as blind as you My dear, what a pity, oh foolish you and foolish, that's how I feel When I see the foolish way you do Fortune fails when you are gone, my dear And I still want more of foolish you I still want more of foolish you That was Wade Hemsworth singing his famous Foolish You, and before that, The Land of the Muskeg. And that's it for this week, folks. Stay tuned for next week when there's going to be a whole bunch of songs about nuclear power. No more of this nature stuff. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.